0: As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be this morning in Genesis chapter 4. This will be from Genesis 4. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, we know that your Word is alive and active like a sharp sword, and Lord, We ask that you would encourage us in these things, but also that you would pierce uh, the deepest places of our hearts to expose and discern the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Lord, even as some of these things cut in us by your word, would you make us whole? We want to be a people that honor you, so would you do this now in us? Help us to listen by your spirit that we would believe. And we ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 4. I want to focus on a narrower section of this, but but we'll read quite a number of verses. We'll take up these first 16 verses. But this is Genesis in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam... Knew Eve his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God. Now, at this point, the narrative focus shifts from Adam and Eve... To now Cain and Abel, and very quickly just Cain. And this account gives us a new setting. We now have events that are happening outside of the garden. We've got a new pair of human characters with the sons of Adam and Eve, and we've got this new shocking twist in the narrative that, that there's a murder that happens between brothers. And even though there are these new elements, this account is not just moving past chapters 1, 2, and 3 into just leaving them behind. There's a clear connection here between this section and, and the things that have come before. So the account of Adam and Eve has now created ripples, reverberations that are continuing on now with Cain. So we see in the scene with Cain, things that we have seen similar to Adam and Eve, that it begins, the scene begins optimistically. There's hope in this. But then very soon, there's a caution or a warning from God. And in spite of that caution, there's a disobedience, an entry into sin, and then the Lord confronts that sin, asking, what have you done when all comes to light, there's a, there's a curse then, which was the focus last week if you were here. That curse gets expanded and continued here, and then it ends with an exile. The Cain is sent even further east of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the same stuff, just a different day. It's that it's all just getting bigger. Sin is spreading and swelling. But that does not mean that we are meant to be fatalistic about sin. As if we're to say, oh well, that's just the way life is. Say lovey. The dam of sin has now been burst. You know, the water is just pouring out. We're just going to let it gush. That's not what this is about. This calls for a very specific response, which is going to be our focus today in verse 7. Let me read the whole verse again. The Lord says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, what does that mean for us? I need to say up front that in any sermon or really anything, any other part where we have contact with the Bible, we always have, in some sense, to hold the whole Bible in our hands. Not just Genesis, but all of the Bible, all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we know is one coherent word, that speaks all together with itself, and so we cannot allow one truth to push out another truth in our minds. It needs to all stay together. It is always true, then, that Jesus is the Savior of sinners who believe in him, and that Jesus saves us not because of one single one of our works, but simply because of his sheer purpose and grace, that it is by faith Grace through faith that we are now saved, and that faith itself is not from us, it's a gift of God. We know that God is sovereign, that's true. God is greater than all things always, and nothing, no one is able to snatch his sheep out of his hand. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you are forever. In Christ that cannot change. The scripture says that he who begins a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That's good news. These are true things that you know. I I trust you know it's true we should hold on to that and find rest in those things and We know that none of that makes our subject today, here, any less true. This is all part of the whole Word of God. And verse 7 here in this text gives us several things. It gives us a fact Sin is at your door. It gives us a problem about that fact, that sin desires you. And then it gives us a solution to the problem about that fact. And the solution, at least here in this text, is not you're saved from sin, although I hope you are, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are saved from sin. Without Jesus, all of this is going to be a fool, fool's errand. But that's not what this says. It's not, you're saved from sin. It also doesn't say, you should admit your sin, confess your sin. We need those too, but those are words. That's not big enough here. That's not what this is after. The solution given here is that you must rule over sin. Don't just watch. Don't just wait for something to happen. You must rule over it. This is something you must do. You must rule over it. You must master sin. The theological term that we use for this is a big fancy one. I like big fancy words. It's called mortification of sin. Mortification of sin. And when we mortify something, it's not to say that we're embarrassed. You know, I bent over, split my pants, and I was mortified. It's not the kind of thing we're talking about here. To mortify is similar to the word mortician, as if those who deal with the dead. To mortify sin, and the way that you master it is to put sin to death. That's the way that the New Testament speaks about this. Even in the light of Jesus. Colossians 3, put to death what is earthly in you. Galatians chapter 5, those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh. Romans 8, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. This is a high-stakes game. There's lots of ways to put this, but I think no one has done a better job than John Owen, an old dead Puritan, who wrote a lot about mortification of sin, and he put it in a nice snappy way. He says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And in the case of Cain, not only it will kill you, but it will kill your brother too. Now, let's look for a moment and how that actually plays out in this scene. Let's look at what historically happens here with Cain. Cain is the firstborn of Adam and Eve in the opening first verse of the, of the chapter. Eve says, "I've gotten a man," which makes Cain sound like, you know, he's a prize in a gumball machine. You know, <laughs> you know, and comes down, ooh, a man. Uh, and in some ways, Cain was a sort of prize to Adam and Eve. Not just because, you know, the birth of kids are are exhausting, but also precious and exciting. But a prize because of the promise of God that had recently happened, even a promise that was embedded within the curse. God had earlier told Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman, that is some offspring of Eve, would be at war with the seed of the serpent, Satan. And even though the serpent's going to strike the man's heel, the man would strike the serpent's head, and that blow would bring victory. It was woven into God's promise, even in the curse. And so when Eve says, I've gotten a man, there's probably a good sense here that she is thinking about this coming seed of the woman who will have victory over the seed of the serpent, and there's hope here. Ah, this might be the one. She has no idea about the irony of this man-child she's just gotten, that not only is he not going to strike the head of the serpent, this one's going to strike the head of his own brother. But they don't know that yet. They're just kids. And, and then uh, Cain has, a, Adam and Eve have another child, Abel, and these two boys grow up together. Abel becomes a shepherd, Cain becomes a farmer, and in the course of time, each of them brings an offering of their work to the Lord. Abel brings the uh, firstborn of his flock, and Cain brings the fruit of the field. And God receives Abel's offering, but not Cain's. He rejects Cain's offering. And the text does not tell us exactly why. It's not because God likes sheep better than he likes apples. You know, both flock and fruit are acceptable, good offerings in the scripture. Nor is it necessarily because of the quality of, of the offering. Some said, oh, Abel brought the firstborn, so he brought his best sheep. And, and, but it's not as if Cain brought, you know, some fruit, whatever leftover mushy banana he happened to have. It seems both brought a, a valid, acceptable offering to God. There's a bit of a mystery here on the face of it. But we can at least say this, God knows something here that we don't know. God sees something here that we cannot see. And it would seem that the the real difference between these two, Cain and Abel and their two offerings, the real reason why God receives them differently is not because of something on the outside, but something on the inside. That the real difference is not between the offerings... But a difference between the offerers. That's why the author of Hebrews draws on this in Hebrews chapter 11 by saying, Abel offered by faith, but Cain did not. There's something here that we're dealing with unseen places beneath the surface. And it seems as if Cain himself is unable to see beneath the surface of his own skin. Because when Cain's offering is rejected, Cain becomes upset, sullen over this. And the Lord confronts Cain with a reality check. Cain, why are you so angry? You know, it's not as if the Lord is unjust or unfair It's not as if the Lord ever shows undue favoritism. It's not as if the Lord has ever been stingy with his generosity and grace. So the Lord says, why are you so angry? Look, if you do well, you'll be accepted. Which suggests here that there is something very unwell going on. That sin is now at Cain's door, and he needs to rule over it. He needs to master it. He needs to to mortify it. And there's a strong sense here in the words of God that if Cain changes something, he will be received just as Abel was. But Cain doesn't ask how to change. Cain doesn't ask for help in changing Cain doesn't try to change anything at all. He just lets the sin lie where it is. And as a result, because Cain did not kill sin, he kills his brother instead. That's dramatic. I know. I think it's supposed to be. You know, imagine if this happened today. You know, we're we're not not talking about first humans in the garden. You know, it happened next door. Adam and Eve is the family that lives just outside of the church. And so, you know, this happens. And, of course, it would be on the news. And they would interview the neighbors, as they always do. And, And, you know, what's going on? You know, did you know Cain? Oh, yeah, I knew Cain. It's a shock. Cain seemed like a really nice guy. You know? Good farmer. Great fruit. I'm shocked. You know, all of this scene here seems really surreal, kind of bizarre. It seems outside of the realm of most of our experience. If you're like me at all, you might look at this and go, yikes, I cannot imagine doing what Cain did. And you're probably right. You know, most of us during the course of our whole lives will not sink so low as to kill a man much less to actually kill our own family. But at the same time, let's not be so naive as to dismiss what's happening here. Because these events are probably closer than we're, than we're willing to admit. There are lots of ways to destroy life more than just to simply kill it. You know, when, when, when unchecked sin gets its way and is allowed to rule over us, it turns us into some really ugly beasts. Not just turn us into murderers, but turn us into grumblers, turn us into sluggards, racists, worrywarts, Unchecked sin can turn us into gluttons or liars or fools or cowards or just empty, apathetic shells of people who on the outside seem like really nice folks. So we have to face this. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you So what are you going to do about it? If you do nothing about this, you lose. No question. If you do nothing, you lose. You will be consumed because sin is not doing nothing. It is quite active. You must rule over it. You must be diligent to put sin to death. And we know this is something that we cannot do on our own, of course. This is the work of God's Spirit in us. But we also know that God's Spirit works in us and through us, but never against us or apart from us. That we are a vital, engaging part of the Spirit's work in us. So the response here isn't, sin is at your door, so why don't you have a seat and a cherry limeade while I deal with it? There is an urgent, important call here. Rule over this sin. Mortify it and put it to death. So then the question becomes, how? That's a question Cain didn't ask. That probably ought to have been his first response, but it wasn't. We want to make that our question, however. You know, to acknowledge, Lord, hey, sin, we know, is destructive. In us, it's dishonoring to you. We need your help now. How do we rule over it? And in the rest of our time, let me suggest that we take up two particular things in our hands and use these as tools of the Spirit that will help us mortify sin. The first tool is this. A radar. A radar. Here's what I mean. Sin is crouching at the door. It's not just sitting there. Sin is crouching. The image is that sin is lying flat like a lion would, stalking its prey. It's like a cat who's getting ready to pounce on the mouse. So sin does not just come up to the door as a guest. Knock, knock, stand there. Hey, can I come in, please? Sin is crafty. It is not always or even often obvious then. And sin is often hard to see, especially in ourselves. So many times our own sin is more obvious to other people than it is to ourselves. Partly because we just have so much pride that, that there's the log in our own eye that had, gives us trouble in seeing what's going on. So we need some sort of radar to see it. And that radar may be Wise or trusted people who love you. Perhaps some of those people are in this room even. Someone who might come to you and say, hey, listen, I know this is awkward, but there's been a particular lion of sin that's lurking around your yard, and I'm concerned, and I care about you, and so I just want you to know Now, I know it's embarrassing to have sin pointed out to you, but listen, it is way better to have that pointed out than to just persist in some sort of ignorance or denial. If that ever happens, it doesn't necessarily mean that the person is right. Anyone can be wrong, of course. But if someone does that, do not blow them off. In fact, we want to invite this sort of experience in. And then listen to the radar. That radar might be other people, but it's not only that. The Word of God itself is a radar. It, it pierces into the deepest places. Sometimes it's a comfort and an encouragement. Sometimes it's, it's, it's exposing of my nakedness. The, the dark corners of ungodliness within me is exposed before it. And we have to humble ourselves to listen to God and His Word. And radar can also be some sort of indicator that happens within ourselves. Did you notice Cain, after his offering was rejected, but before he ends up murdering his brother, in that space in between, did you see his response? He got very angry, and his face fell, is what the text says, that Cain's very body His posture, his demeanor, his emotions on the surface are now showing symptoms of a deeper problem of sin underneath. This radar is blaring loudly, but Cain isn't listening. If you find yourself very angry about almost anything, you should first take a look at your own doorstep there is likely a very particular sin there, lurking, crouching, and desiring to have you. Do not miss that radar and risk ending up like Cain. We need a radar because we cannot master what we do not see. So we want a radar in one hand. The other tool for the other hand is this. I'll suggest a dagger. How dramatic is that? I picked it very purposefully. A radar and a dagger. If sin is at your door, at your door, you're already in danger. Which means a leash is not going to do much. You know, some people think that they can keep certain sins like they would pets. As long as I can keep this thing on a leash, I'll be fine. That's almost never the case. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we have mastery over this when we don't, really. If you like to keep a particular sin around as a pet, that means that pet has control over you and you have not mastered it. A leash is not going to do you any good. Sin needs to be put to death. But I'm suggesting the tool of a dagger for a particular reason. Poison isn't going to work because it's too slow. It might eventually kill sin, but only after it's already killed you. That means we are not just to slowly wean ourselves off of sin. Instead of ten sodas, I'm going to do nine. And I'm slowly going to cut it down. That's not going to help us. Poison won't work, neither will a bow and arrow, because bow and arrow is too far. There's certainly a place for prevention of sin, to keep ourselves far from it, but that's going to do us little good if sin is already at our door. Not poison, not a bow and arrow, and I'd also say not necessarily a sword either. Partly because even though a sword is close and quick, it's also a little too broad. Some people think that the way to go about uh, mastering sin is just by slashing a sword around. You know? I'm just going to wipe it every which way. I'm a sinner in need of grace. And if I repeat that enough, then I'm going to fight it off. Fine, okay, yes, I am a sinner in need of grace. That's true. But swiping around anywhere is not actually going to hit or kill a particular lion, especially one who's crouching. All that's going to do, swiping the sword, is just wear you out. In order to be actually effective in killing sin, the strike needs to be targeted. And a dagger is short and specific, close enough to be able to do that. So, an example of this is have you ever had a person who who has sinned against you, and somehow you have a confrontation about this, and the person says, I'm sorry for what I did. And you go, what did you do? What are you sorry about? I want you to know, what are you sorry for? And they say, well, you know, all of it. You know how insulting that feels? and how far that misses the mark. The person may not even understand what sin they actually are trying to repent of. We want to know what specific wrong did you do and, and that you now want to change. That is how you put sin to death. That's how you kill sin. You need to deal with specific sins specifically. So these are the two tools we want to take up. Tools of the Spirit to mortify sin, one in each hand, a radar to see it, and then a dagger to target it. As I wind this down, let me just say this final bit. Killing sin in us isn't just something we ought to do. It is... But it's not just, oh, the Bible says I'm supposed to do that. We want this. We want to kill sin in our own hearts. Partly because it honors God to do that. And that is reason enough in itself, but also because mortifying sin is good for us. Even if it's hard and it hurts to do it, let me guarantee you the hurt is worth it. There's a scene in, in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce. It's a fictional novel, a little quirky for, too quirky for some of us. But there's a scene in this book where there's, where there's a man who's got a red lizard on his, a little red lizard on his shoulder. And that lizard is so connected with the man that it's almost part of him. And the lizard tortures the man, uh, whips his tail around all the time, and continually whispers in the man's ear. And so this man with this little red lizard meets one of the bright ones. And in the story, the bright one says to the man, would you like me to quiet that lizard? And the man says, of course. And the bright one says, then I must kill it. And the man's response is, no, 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 no. He backs up, keep away from me, you know, uh, you, you're, you're getting too close to me, you're burning me even. And so then they have this back and forth conversation where the man begins to beg or try to negotiate with the bright one. He says, no, no, just come back another time. And then later he says, well, how about you try to kill it slowly, maybe give me some sort of gradual process. And then eventually he says, no, I'm, I'm feeling fine after all. I think I'm, I'm good, just leave me alone. But the bright one persists and he says, may I kill it? I must have your permission, may I kill it? And by this point, the man is now writhing, pushing back the lizards, chattering as fast as I can, but the bright one, may I, may I kill it? May I, and the man begins to shout, and then to swear, and then to curse, and he gets out of control until eventually he just collapses in a whimper and says, God, help me. And at that point, the bright one comes up, and snatches the lizard and breaks its back and casts the lizard down to the ground dead. And the man collapses in a, in a cry of agony. But that isn't the end. Because soon after that moment, the dead lizard on the ground begins to move. Begins to grow and transform into a golden stallion that then bows his head before the man. And as the man stands up, instead of being ridden by this little red lizard, he now gets on its back and rides this horse. That he is now the master over the thing that once mastered him. And there's a song that erupts as he rides away, and part of it is overcome us so that overcome we may be ourselves. That's the work of Jesus in us, that he's overcoming sin. Yes, to save us from the guilt of sin, but also to give us mastery over our sin to give us dominion over it. It's his kingship, and now he wants us to have dominion over sin as well. That is Jesus's power. It's his power, not yours, but it's a power that he gives you to put sin to death. So do not squander it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know this is true, not just because you tell us in your word, but because in our honest moments we feel it, that sin crouches at our door and desires to have us. Lord, by your spirit, would you help us to take up the radar and the dagger and to face the door, to fight sin again and again. We know that sin may crouch at our door, but you are greater. And so, Jesus, because of you, we know you rule over things. Help us now by your power to rule over sin as you desire. Work this in us, we ask by the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.